Good morning. For those of you who came in after the invocation, that was Michael and I'm Mike. The mics have arrived. And I can say it's a privilege for both of us to be here with you this morning. Um, I will say though, I, I like it better to be at ground level when I do this because I don't like heights. And it feels really weird to be up here. I'm concerned I would have a nosebleed. <laughs> However, if I did have a nosebleed, you would all, you would not fear for yourselves that your heads would suddenly spontaneously explode like mine was. You would say, well, the reason that's happening to Mike is he's standing up too high. Guy doesn't like heights. He gets up on two steps, a guy has a nosebleed. Um, that's because we want reasons for things, right? We don't want to believe that things just randomly happen to people because if that's true, it could happen to you, right? I mean, if someone's brakes go out on their car and they have an accident, I want some reasons to this. I don't want to know that it just sort of occurred. I want to know that they quit servicing their car back in 1997 and haven't had the brakes worked on in all these years. So of course that's what's going to happen. Your car is going to fail, you're gonna get into an accident. I don't want this to be a freak thing that just randomly occurs, otherwise it could happen to me. I don't want that to happen. It makes me nervous. In our text this morning about the man who was healed, the man born blind, the disciples were kind of playing this game. Uh, they wanted to know why. Why was this man born blind? And they asked Jesus, what, what's, what's the reason for this? His sin, his parents' sin, it's gotta be somebody at fault here. And they were probably given voice, giving voice to a, to a common assumption in that first century Jewish community that, that clearly when bad things happen to people, there's, there's some culpability, uh, sins at the door. Somebody has done something, someone has angered God. And this is, these things don't just happen without God's involvement. I also don't think it's too much of a leap to assume that as the disciples were asking this question, they were concerned, you know, uh, could this happen to one of us? Uh, I mean, after all, if God ordains blindness to a baby, then what disaster awaits all of us sinners around the corner? Makes them a little bit nervous. Jesus, as he often did, w wouldn't directly answer their question. In fact, he, he dismisses their assumptions and he redirects. He, he changes the momentum of the question. He says that, that the man's disability actually has to do with the revealing of God's works. But for us, this really creates a couple of questions. Okay, so, so if he says, look, this has nothing to do with somebody being responsible for it. It has to do with the revealing of God's works. We're not quite settled on that answer yet. Because does, we ask, does God ordain sickness and disease in order to show what he can do? And if so, is every sickness and disease then just waiting to be healed so that God's power can be revealed? I don't know if those are your questions, but they're sure mine. Um, well, you know, it wasn't the first time that Jesus had to deal with this kind of an issue. People pose questions like this to him all the time. Uh, one time he was asked about some folks who had been brutally murdered by Pontius Pilate. And then about some other folks who had been tragically killed in an accident when a big tower, probably made of stone, collapsed and just crushed a whole bunch of people. And they came to Jesus and said, what, what about those people? And the implication is, you know, how come this happened to them? 
what they do. And Jesus' response was kind of similar. Uh, he said that those people who died, they weren't any better or worse than anybody else. But he also told them to watch their steps just to be safe, I guess. Well, you know, Jesus' comment about the man born blind was probably intended to be less of a precise theological answer than it was a, a redirecting of the focus of the disciples. They were looking for culpability. They were looking for responsibility. Someone had to be blamed for this. But Jesus wanted them to see what God the Father was doing in this place of tragedy and pain. The disciples wanted to assign blame to somebody, either the man or his parents, and Jesus turned them instead to God's redemptive purposes. Well, this man, born blind, obviously had never seen anything because he was born without sight. And so he had never experienced light or color. He'd never seen a landscape. He'd never actually seen a human face, including his own. Nothing but darkness for this guy. So he couldn't work. He had to beg off on the side of the road. He wasn't a vital member of the community. He was just that man over there, born blind. You know the guy, the guy that begs at the side of the road, the man born blind who stays over there and not over here with us. And because he's over there and he's not here and he's blind, obviously he's, he's either responsible or a victim. But either way, it's sin at the door that has caused this to happen. That would be the thinking. The folks did not see that his condition could be something that was just random. They didn't understand that it could have been a birth defect, some kind of in utero, in utero abnormality of some type. There had to be a reason, another reason, and the reason had to be sin. He was blind because of sinners. But Jesus didn't see him that way. That's not the way that Jesus responded to the man. He, he didn't approach that man as a marginalized non-person, not as a second or third rate example of what happens to you when you inadvertently trip over God's secret and hidden boundaries. Jesus comes to the man as someone who shares humanity with him. He comes to the man with compassion, he treats him as a co-human, one who is made in the image of God and who has not missed God's notice. God has not forgotten him. The man's condition, rather than being the result of his or his parents' sin, is the result of living in a broken, tragic world. And Jesus is coming to offer a sign that God's intentions for a new world are on the way. And Jesus heals him. He does so on the basis of God's ongoing work in the world, not as a retraction to divine wrath. To think that God ordained the blindness of a newborn baby, in my mind, makes God a monster, just to be honest with you. Uh, if God somehow needed that blindness in order to show what he could do, then why not take this man, if the man was, say, 30 years old, blind him a month earlier before Jesus shows up on the road? It would still be a miracle when Jesus healed him, but give the guy his sight. Let him grow up as a kid. Let him be in the community. Then blind him. Strike him with blindness, and Jesus will fix it, and all of God's miraculous works will be revealed. The same result. Well, Jesus' corrective about God's work and about Jesus' participation in the work of God is significant here. 
But what's more significant, I think, is the way that Jesus facilitates the healing. Uh, Rather than simply pronouncing the man to be healed, he had done that at other times. He'd raise people from the dead with a word. But he doesn't do that this time. There's this different process. It's kind of an odd process. He makes this paste of, of his own saliva and dirt from the ground and applies it to the man's eyes and then sends him over to the pool of Siloam probably the nearest body of water, and says, wash it off, and the man does. And when he returns, he can see. But why the mud? Now, I know you've asked this question. Come on, you've read this text before, and you're going, what's the deal with the mud? And aren't you glad when we pray for each other, we don't find it necessary to copy that, you know? Um, Yeah, I mean, you don't wanna have someone who does that pray for you if you have like a sore on your lip or something because it's really a disgusting process. And we look at it and it's kind of an offense to us. I mean, what an odd, odd thing to do. Why go to the trouble when just a word from Jesus would have taken care of everything? Uh, The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright offers a little bit of help, I think, with this. He suggests that not only the acts of, of miraculous healing Uh, and restoration and exorcism, all of the things that Jesus did, not only were those signs and wonders, but the the actions themselves of Jesus were also sign and wonder. Just as, as the Jewish people would have seen the temple as the place where both heaven and earth come together, uh, so did Jesus enact that reality in his own actions. So he combined the touch of his hand, the hand of the Son of God, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, with the very dust of the earth. And he combined those things together, bringing the reality of God's purposes and engagement with the world together as a foretaste of what was yet to come, the new heaven and the new earth, the fulfillment of the coming of the kingdom of God. And so the resulting miracle and the actions became sign and wonder. Well, that's what signs are supposed to do anyway, right? Signs point to something else. The sign isn't the thing. The thing is the thing. Uh, If you're standing under a sign that says the place you're going to is five miles down the road, that's good news for you because it means that, that you're going the right direction. You haven't gotten on the wrong road. You're on the right road and you're only five miles away. But you don't stop walking because that's where you're going. Uh, You don't stay under the sign and say, well, here I am. The sign helps you to get to where you're going. It points to a reality that's greater than itself, and the sign symbolizes that greater reality. Well, the the healing of the blind man was, was truly a significant event, so much so that the local folks, when he came back, didn't recognize him. Weren't sure that he was the same guy. And you can understand why. If you've seen someone who's been blind from birth, there's a kind of distortion that sometimes takes place in the eyes, even an atrophying of the eye. And so when he comes back in his face, his entire countenance is lit up and alive and his eyes are looking around for the first time seeing things he had never even imagined, probably didn't even know what he was looking at. Uh, they didn't recognize the guy. But the miraculous part is that it, it wasn't limited to just the event itself. It pointed to the greater purposes of God in the world. You know, there are, there are folks who would say that healing's available to absolutely everybody who wants it and needs it. It's just there, it's just there for the asking. Uh, I think that creates a bit of a problem, really. 
if physical healing is a guarantee that comes as a result of what God has done in and through Jesus, then we have to ask, why don't all faithful people just get healed? Just zip, just like that. And again, some would say that, well, the healing has to come as a result of a sufficient amount of faith in God's willingness and ability to heal, but that claim does not always hold up to biblical scrutiny. Our gospel text this morning doesn't suggest anything about the blind man's level of faith in Jesus. Um, It's just silent on that topic. We don't know anything about what this guy expected, what he anticipated, if he had faith in anything, if he even knew who Jesus was. We just don't know the answer to that. Uh, In fact, it's Jesus who happens upon the man along the road. The man does not seek Jesus out. Jesus goes to him. The disciples point him out. What's the deal with this guy, Jesus? Who sinned? And Jesus engages with the man. Not at the man's request, but at Jesus' own initiative. So he comes upon the man. We don't hear him asking to be healed. Jesus just reaches out and does it. There's other stories like this. Take the story that's reflected in both Mark and Luke of the, of the guys who lower their friend down through the roof. It's a, just a great story. And you know, they can't get to Jesus, so they tear some guy's roof apart. And the, they lower their friend down through that hole in the roof. It's paralyzed man, we're told. I'm guessing his head was paralyzed in his mouth, too, because he never speaks in the story, either one. Never says a word. And I'm stunned by the story because Jesus does indeed heal the man, forgives his sins. And we're told in the text that he does so on the basis of the faith of the friends. Um, That rattles some of our evangelical bones, doesn't it? A vicarious faith, how does that even work? But there it is, it's in our story. We see people being touched by Jesus who lack faith, who do not articulate faith. We see Lazarus raised and he's dead. Not a whole lot of faith in a dead guy, as far as I know. The rules just don't seem to be clear on this. And maybe that's because there aren't any rules. There is only sign and wonder. And they come to us as God is working in the world. Still, we have to wonder why sometimes our prayers for the healing of others do not get answered. Prayers for ourselves. Uh, My wife and I had a dear friend who at 41, some years ago, 20 years ago, was diagnosed with terminal cancer, gave him seven months to live, just like that. Married, four daughters, all under the age of 16. One of the most devout Christian friends I've, I've known in my entire life. His level of trust in God was admirable. And, uh, and he died in seven months. We prayed for him, many people prayed for him. Um, if there's a deserving thing to this whole healing business, he was you know, a nine out of 10 at the very least, and he died. Um, it's interesting, on his deathbed, we saw him a week before he died, his wife said to him, and she knew he was slipping away, she could tell. And she said to him, um, Kurt, is there anything you want me to tell people after today? And he lay there barely able to speak and he told her two things. Tell them God is good and God is faithful. That's a healing of sorts. That's a sign and wonder to me. We do wonder though, why not? Why does it not always happen? Uh, The disciples asked this of Jesus. What about the guy they prayed for who had epilepsy? Didn't work, nothing happened. And he says, well, the problem is your lack of faith. Well, there it is. 
But then he goes on to say, look, if you've even got a little bitty piece of faith, size of a mustard seed, you can move a whole mountain. It's a great metaphor. But it's likely the disciples' problem was not that they lacked the proper quantity of faith. I mean, among all of them, there had to be a mustard seed in there somewhere, you would think. But it probably wasn't at that stage of their followership of Jesus that they lacked the right amount that would make God happy, but rather that they simply didn't have faith that it would work at all. Perhaps they were imitating Jesus, copying his moves, so to speak. You know, when we saw him do it before, you know, he put his left foot here and his right foot here, and he shook it all around, and uh, had a little smirk on his face, and he winked his eye, and if we all do that, if we do all the stuff that Jesus did, maybe we can make this work too, and it didn't. Um, what was lacking was not a, a quantity, but rather the, the quality of trust that Jesus had in his heavenly Father. You know, in the New Testament Greek, faith and trust are interchangeable words. We sometimes talk of faith as though it's a, it's a kind of quantifiable measure of how we believe our creeds and our doctrines. Um, but trust is an entirely different matter. Trust is always relational. And Jesus exhibited this trust in his heavenly Father that so much that he could engage with what his Father was doing in the world. And in that, that faith was expressed. So they may have been imitating his moves, but they were not probably engaging with his trust in his heavenly Father. So sign and wonder. Sign and wonder is right at the heart of the church's mission in the whole world. It's sign and wonder that we bother to care for people in the first place. It's sign and wonder that we gather around a hurting brother and sister or sister and, and come close to them and hear their story and help carry that burden and pray that God would come into that place of pain and tragedy and bring healing. That very act in and of itself, regardless of its result, is sign and wonder. It's sign and wonder that we gather together to worship. Some pastors and Christian leaders say it's a miracle that anybody shows up in the first place, I suppose. That's sign and wonder in and of itself. It's sign and wonder when the same faults and sins that we share with the rest of the world are healed through love, forgiveness, restoration, and reconciliation, rather than having lives battered by hatred, violence, vengeance, and ultimately division. It's sign and wonder. And it's sign and wonder when the Spirit of God acts, breaking through all of our limitations, all of our expectations, restoring that which was broken in body, mind, and spirit. I mean, perhaps God won't act when we harbor a sort of anti-faith, that is, a, a, a conviction that God doesn't act in the world. Not a hesitation, not a wondering, not a fear and trembling, but rather a, conv a conviction that it simply is not permitted, nor is it reasonable. Perhaps if we were to harbor that, that God would pull his hand back. But Jesus assures us that our faith not be massive in order for God to act. And faith is not a quanti quantitative measure of a belief system. It, it's, it's not a, a, a quid pro quo, meaning I give God something, he gives me something back. I give God the, the checklist of all my faithful cognitive responses and he hands me back something else, a healing or whatever it is that I require. Because it is about trust, a relational trust in our heavenly Father. And it's our heavenly Father who not only hears but who also acts and whose love for the world compels us to continue to be sign and wonder, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of the world. 
You know, I think how we perceive our identity is very important as we think about this. If we are in pain, then we could very easily take on the identity of a marginalized, sick, and wounded person whose only need is recovery from that. Uh, Perhaps the blind man had that kind of identity. If you were to ask him, who are you? I'm a blind beggar. That's it, that's all I got. Or we can actually flip over to the other end of of the spectrum and we can embrace the identity of one who's healthy and whole without need and actually run the risk of believing that God is no longer even necessary to us. In effect, forgetting about God. That could be an identity as well. But those are not the right places for us to either begin or end. Whether we're suffering or whether we're feeling just fine, we always begin and end with Jesus. That's where our core identity lies. Sick, well, our core identity is not in any of those places. Our core identity is grounded in Jesus. And that is also sign and wonder. And as I close this morning, I I hope that that there may be some of you here today who come and say that that is my deal. I am suffering. And I'm I'm scared about this whole thing of asking God to do anything because I'm afraid that he won't do it. And, And we have no explanation for how this works except we know that God works as God works. And all that we do is sign and wonder. And if you have come here today and you've come and you're hurting, um, I, I encourage you to take that risk to step to the back at the end of our service that someone will pray for you because that gathering, that, that putting on the, the, the hands of love and care and anticipation on a hurting person is sign and wonder that indeed the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I encourage you to take that step. And as you come to the table this morning, as we, as we prepare to gather for Eucharist, remember that you come to this table not as a qualifier, but you come because Jesus has invited you to come and dine. And in the same way, he invites you to come and receive care. Amen.